in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. But then I realized that looking at the functional genomics allowed you to, what we call, look under the hood, see what's, uh, what's really going on. And the, the genesis of it, when I just started looking at homocysteine, and, you know, homocysteine, if it's too high, uh, you know, creates, uh, you know, sooner death from all causes. When somebody says, this is the diet that's good for everybody, run, because there isn't one. There's scientific evidence that continual exposure to EMF causes superoxide inside the body. You know, back in the early days of, uh, of mining, the miners would take a canary along with them. And what they would do is they would watch the canary because the canary had very small lungs. And if the oxygen would stop dropping, start dropping, the canary would fall over dead or, or they better get out or they'll be next. And that's where that canary in the coal mine story came from. We are seeing many people that are now the canary in the coal mines today that, you know, you run into people all the time. They can't be around someone with perfume. They can't even go down the aisle of the grocery store. So if somebody has genetic weakness in their detox pathways, they're going to be that canary in the coal mine. My name is Jorge Roman, certified health coach and author of Return to Human. My goal with this podcast is pretty simple, to bring you both sides of the story in a world filled with cancel culture, where open conversation seems to be nearly impossible, especially in the sciences. By interviewing experts in the fields of evolutionary biology, neuroscience, metabolism, exercise physiology, epigenetics, and beyond, I hope to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My name is Jorge Roman and my guest today is Bob Miller, a traditional naturopath specializing in the field of genetic specific nutrition. He earned his traditional naturopathic degree from Trinity School of Natural Health and is board certified through the ANMA. In 1993, he opened the Tree of Life practice and he has served as a traditional naturopath for 27 years. And for the past several years, he has been engaged exclusively with functional, nutritional, genetic variants and related research, specializing in nutritional support for those with chronic Lyme disease. Bob, thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. We're going to have a lot of fun today. Yeah, I think so. We're going to be talking a lot about uh, you know, inflammation, oxidative stress, uh, nutrigenetics, which is really something I'm, I'm very excited to talk about because that's how I really, you know, nutrition was how I launched into the health space in general. That's where I began as an athlete several years ago. So I'm very excited to talk about this. It's an emerging field. And yeah, so first, tell me about the work that you're doing um, at the Nutrigenetic Institute, um, the Tree of Life, and uh, you know, for the listeners who aren't aware of genetic-specific nutrition. Sure. Well, it was uh, maybe about 15 years ago uh, that I started looking at, uh, you know, the way people are healing, the way they're getting well. And, you know, in traditional naturopathy, we do things typically for, you know, anti-inflammatory or support digestion, all those kind of things. But then I realized that looking at the functional genomics uh, allowed you to, what we call, look under the hood, see what's, uh, what's really going on. And the, the genesis of it, when I just started looking at homocysteine, and you know, homocysteine, if it's too high, uh, you know, creates, uh, you know, sooner death from all causes. So I started looking at that, 
and then realized there's these things called the, the enzymes that are controlled by our genetics. And I just fell in love with it. It was just so fascinating. So back then, you know, 23andMe, you know, gave us a, a really good genetic report. And uh, what I did is I just created a, uh, a spreadsheet, just an Excel spreadsheet, where we downloaded 23andMe. And I started putting logic in there that said, <clears throat> you know, let's sort by, by these enzymes. And then I'd plug in the different enzymes. And I was, you know, very crude when I look back at it at that time. Uh, then many doctors became quite interested in that. And they're like, well, can we have that spreadsheet? And... Uh, and then from there, there was so much demand that uh, I decided, well, we can't just be constantly sharing a spreadsheet. I mean, it was really crude. I mean, it's kind of like the, the old Model A Ford or something like that. Uh, so then uh, I worked with a, company, a computer company, and we made our own cloud-based software so that the, uh, the 23andMe data could be uploaded. Uh, things were going along quite well until 23andMe came out with their next version of, uh, of uh, genetic testing. And of course, you know, they, they made improvements for them, which would be related to better ancestry and more data, but it really dropped a lot of the functional genomics we were looking at. So as a result of that, then I decided, well, if I want to really be looking at functional genomics quite well and nutrigenomics, uh, then I need to have my own chip. So then I created my own genetic chip that now doctors use. So we have software that uh, doctors across the world use, uh, not for looking at disease, but for looking at things like nutrigenomics and uh, functional genomics. So I've been at it now for uh, you know a good 15 years, uh, having a blast. And uh, we think we're on the, on the cutting edge of looking at what we call functional genomics. And we can get into that uh, just a bit as we, as we move along. So that's, uh, that's some of the history. Yeah, very interesting. Um, so just, curious, how did 23andMe change uh, the way that they do things, which made it kind of more difficult for you? Well, you know, they, uh, you know, there, there's millions of what are called SNPs, and we can get into that. And, uh, you know, they on their version three and four, you know, had many of the SNPs that were related to function. And of course, you know, they, they give you ancestry information. So I can't say for sure, but I, but I think they wanted more genes related to ancestry and perhaps for some other reason. So they just pushed some aside that wasn't of interest to them, which is fine. But it was of interest to those of us who wanted to look at function. So that's why I made my own chip where I put back a lot of the things that uh, that were removed from that. And then there's, there's concerns for security and safety and all of that. Uh, it's probably a good move because there is some concerns of data being shared. And of course, we never share anyone's data in our you know, we don't sell it to anybody. We don't share it with anybody. <clears throat> the computer company we work with uh, actually does work for the U.S. Navy, where security is just utmost. So we probably have more security on someone's genetic data than uh, probably anybody else does because of, uh, of who we work with. Amazing. Yeah, so that was a perfect segue because I do want to talk about SNPs or single nucleotide polymorphisms next. So Tell me about them and their role in genetic-specific nutrition. Sure. Well, firstly, let me back up a step. Uh, as we know, we're all made out of cells. And inside those cells are something called the mitochondria, the mighty mitochondria, as they sometimes call it. And, uh, you know, what a miracle we are. We eat fats, carbohydrates, proteins. We drink water, we breathe air, and we're exposed to sunlight. 
and everything gets made. I mean, the more I step back and just think about it, it's like, wow, how does it do that? How does that, uh, how does that happen? So that happens because something called enzymes will take one substance and they'll pull that substance in and they'll pull something else in or maybe two things. And with the cofactor, they'll make something new. Then another enzyme comes along and says, okay, I'll take this end product, combine it with something else and make something new. So that's how those fats, carbs, proteins, water, air, and sunlight become everything inside the body. I mean, to me, it's just mind boggling how that works. You know, your hair, your skin, your nails, your neurotransmitters, your red blood cells, they all get manufactured by the body. And that's those enzymes. Now, the reason I started there was because your DNA is the instructions on how to make the enzymes. And I'm sure everyone's seen DNA that looks like a ladder that, that twists, okay. And that ladder that twists, on the one side, you get what's called a nucleotide from mother, on the other side, nucleotide from father. So at the moment you were conceived, when that sperm and egg went together, boom, your genetic pattern was made. Doesn't change. And 50 years after you're gone, if there's tissue left and someone measures it, it's going to be the same. Now, people argue that the expression of the genes are affected by environmental factors and cofactors. Yeah, yes. But that actual blueprint of how your, your body makes the enzymes never changes. So these nucleotides, interestingly, there's only four of them, and they're abbreviated A, C, T, and G. Now, let's go back to those enzymes. Enzymes take one thing, make it to another. If that enzyme's not working at 100%, that enzyme is not going to take that one substance as effectively and take it into the next. So we call that, when we have an enzyme deficiency, a SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism, or sometimes it's called a mutation or a defect. I don't like to use those words. Nobody's mutated or defected. But what happens is, you know, we, we get a swap. There's only four of them. They're called A, C, T, and G. And for each enzyme, one of them is ideal, and another one may not be as efficient. So when we get these mutations or SNPs, the enzyme may be working at 70% or 50% rather than 100%. Now, interestingly, people say, well, how did we get those? Well, there is some thought that sometimes accidents occur. That there is some thought that during the 1200s, when, uh, when, uh, when syphilis and gonorrhea and those sexually transmitted diseases were rampant, that's when some of these mutations occurred. But interestingly, some mutations are actually helpful. For example, people of English and Irish descent, uh, they often have genetic mutations that they absorb a little bit more iron from their diets. <clears throat> and I'm sure people have heard of hemochromatosis. That's when it's severe. Uh, but a mild versions of that occur quite often in the English and Irish. And what it goes back to, you know, the reason the Irish came to America was because of the potato famines. And during the potato famines, if you happen to have a genetic mutation that you absorbed more iron, that was to your advantage. So the women who had that mutation were more likely to have babies. So by natural selection, those people absorb more iron. They're conferred an advantage. Yes. During times of famine, 
that's a good thing. Right. Come to America, we don't have too much famine. Many foods are fortified with iron, and we can actually then get too much iron. And we can talk about that later when we talk about inflammation, but the cliff note is that if iron is in excess and not carried around properly, it's one of the nastiest free radicals there is. Uh, if we don't have iron, we don't have hemoglobin, life doesn't exist. But excess iron or iron not being carried around properly is very inflammatory. Uh, another one is uh, G6PD mutations. Uh, G6PD is involved with making something called NADPH that recycles your antioxidants. However, uh, NAD, what G6PD mutations protect you from malaria. So, particularly in Africa and in, uh, in Native Americans, this G6PD mutation actually protected you from malaria. Now, however, that really puts you at a disadvantage when you're dealing with a lot of inflammation. Well, in Africa or when people are Native Americans, they didn't have that many things that created inflammation. So it was to your advantage. Today, uh, G6PD mutations really put you at a distinct disadvantage because you don't recycle your antioxidants. And clearly, perhaps we can get into this, you know, we're living in a world today vastly different from just 50 years ago. Uh, all of the environmental things, and we can tick those off very quickly. Because I think someday we're going to look back and say, what in the heck were we thinking? Okay, number one, giving the animals growth hormones so they get fatter faster. Oh my gosh. Yes, you're going to make more money because the animal is going to get fatter faster. But as we eat that meat, we get those growth hormones that can be inflammatory. Plastics. You know, when I was a kid, our milk came in glass jars. Well, we became modernized and who wants to mess with, re, you know, washing your glass? So let's put it in plastic and we can just throw it away. Where I'm in Pennsylvania, a study was done. You cannot find one waterway in Pennsylvania now that doesn't have microplastic particles in it. Those plastics are xenoestrogens. Male frogs are getting ovaries. Male fish are getting ovaries. Uh, and anybody who's... Uh, you know, probably over 50 years old, knows that girls today at 12 are much more mature than they were 50 years ago at 12 because of the estrogen driving the, uh, you know, the breast development and other things. Uh, boys' sperm rates are dropping. Boys' testosterone is dropping. Uh, then the other one we're going to look back on, I believe, is glyphosate. Uh, interesting story on glyphosate. Um, it was actually, as a, I believe it was a metal chelator. I'm not exactly sure, but it had something to do with taking metal particles off. That may not be quite correct, but it, it wasn't designed as, a, as something that kills weeds. The story goes that it actually got spilled on some weeds and they saw that it killed the weeds. So it was like, we've got a weed killer here. So, <laughs> so all across the world, we're putting glyphosate on the crops. And... Uh, you know, many people who tried to warn us about glyphosate were just silenced and ridiculed. And uh, now you're seeing ads on in the media if you were exposed to glyphosate and have various cancers. Uh, so glyphosate seems to be impacting us in various ways. Um, then we genetically modify our foods. 
then we're exposed to all of our volatile organic compounds. Mold appears to be getting stronger. And the one that a lot of people are surprised by, that more and more evidence is coming out, and that is that uh, our cell phones and Wi-Fi, uh, there's scientific evidence that continual exposure to, um, to EMF causes superoxide inside the body. And that's a nasty free radical. So we've done a lot that we're going to look back. Oh, the other one is, uh, I'm glad to see that you have wired earbuds on. Uh, because when people have these wireless, you know, we're going to look back someday and say, what were we thinking? Just getting bombarded with radiation. Yeah. Putting radio transmitters basically inside our heads. Seriously? <laughs> we're going to look back on that and say, oh, my God, what were we thinking? You know? Absolutely. Yeah. So the bottom line is we are just bombarding ourselves with environmental toxins. And... I don't know if you know the story of, uh, you know, back in the early days of, of mining, the miners would take a canary along with them. And what they would do is they would watch the canary because the canary had very small lungs. And if the oxygen would stop dropping, start dropping, and I think it was CO2 or something else going up, the canary would fall over dead. So they knew that they better get out next. Or they better get out or they'll be next. And that's where that canary in the coal mine story came from. So we are seeing many people that are now the canary in the coal mines today that, you know, you run into people all the time. They can't be around someone with perfume. Cigarettes make them sick. They can't even go down the aisle of the grocery store. Um, everything bothers them. I, I just saw a report that the older millennials, those that are 36 to 40, as a group, they are now sicker than any other time in history for that age group. Autoimmune disease, chronic illness, you know, and when I was a kid, we used to call it adult onset diabetes. Now, six and eight year old kids are getting diabetes. So autoimmune and diseases are going up rapidly despite, you know, many, uh, many uh, improvements in medical care, but I believe it's related to uh, environmental toxicity. And those who have functional weakness, so if anybody's wondering why I'm going down that rabbit hole, it's coming back to functional weakness. So if somebody has genetic weakness in their detox pathways, they're going to be that canary in the coal mine that gets sicker from mold. I see this all the time. Two people live in the same house. One person is sick as can be from the mold, and the other person says, you're imagining things I don't feel. This must be in your head. But the problem is the one person has good detox capacity. The other one doesn't. So that's how our genetics impact us. Because when, when we get those SNPs that impact how we might make more inflammation, and we can go over that, or how we might make less than optimal antioxidants, then that just sets us up for an inflammatory condition the changes, you know, the traditional naturopath talked about the internal terrain or the milieu, the internal environment of the body. Uh, if we go back in history, Antoine Bechamp is the guy who said uh, it's the environment of the body that creates illness. And then other scientists said, uh, no, it's the virus or the bacteria. Well, it's both. So, uh, so when you have the virus or the bacteria, 
for some people, they'll fight it off. Other people, they, they don't. So there was this scientific argument between the environment and the pathogen. And the bottom line is they were both correct. We didn't this need is to terrain, terrain versus germ theory, right? Yes, uh, the germ theory, yes. Uh -huh. Well, that was a very comprehensive introduction. I think that really laid the foundation for what we're going to get into. Um, so, you know, leading, you know, going from um, oxidative stress, um, let's, let's talk about that. Because on your website, you explain that there's an imbalance of you know, that an imbalance of free radicals and oxidative stress may be at the root of, you know, many chronic diseases. Um, so how do you go about identifying this and then subsequently reversing it? Sure. Well, let's first talk about oxidative stress. Uh, everything's made out of atoms. So you got the neutron, proton, and the electron that spins. And that needs to be electrically balanced. If an electron gets ripped off, that's called a free radical. And that, elect, that atom doesn't like being that way. So it will happily steal from its neighbor and then so doing, do tissue damage. So when you've got inflammation, for the most part, you've got free radicals called reactive oxygen species. Antioxidants have a spare electron. So one of the major antioxidants is called glutathione. And glutathione is made from three amino acids and your body makes that. <clears throat> so, you can have genetic defects that you don't make enough glutathione. Uh, you can have genetic weakness that you don't recycle your glutathione. So, after glutathione donates an electron, it's oxidized. So, we need to put an electron back on there. Earlier, I talked about the G6PD mutation. That limits your NADPH that puts that electron back on there. So you need to make glutathione, which is made from cysteine, glycine, and glutamate. You need to use it properly to take toxins out and neutralize free radicals. And you need to, re, to recycle it. Interestingly, uh, we do, uh, as you mentioned, we do studies on Lyme disease. We've done eight of them. Uh, we're working on our ninth right now. We're recording this uh, Memorial Day weekend. And this weekend, I'm going to be writing my abstract to present to, uh, to ILADS where we're actually finding those with chronic Lyme, those who, you know, let's back up. Some people get bit by a tick and their body fights it off. Others do one round of antibiotics and they're fine. And then there's other people that are struggling for years and they're seeing the best Lyme doctors and they're getting the best antibiotics and the binders and everything else. They can't seem to get over it. Those are the ones we're studying. And uh, we'll be possibly presenting this at the ILADS in September that those who have this chronic condition many times don't effectively recycle their oxidized glutathione to the reduced. And we have the Neutrogenic Research Institute that looks at these things, and uh, that's who will be presenting this data. And we're finding those people that are really struggling are the ones that oftentimes don't take their oxidized glutathione back to the reduced. So that's the uh, antioxidant side of it. So, and there's antioxidants like catalase, and again, you can have genetic mutations that you don't make enough catalase. Uh, one of the ones that we're really researching right now is superoxide dismutase. I'm very intrigued by that. And we can talk about some of the genetic mutations that allow you to make not enough of that. So you can have a genetic predisposition that you don't make enough antioxidants. Now, on the other hand, 
you can have genetic mutations that you don't make that you make too many free radicals. And uh, if, you, if you'd like, we can uh, we can zip through the free radical producers, then we'll go through the antioxidants. And so one of my things that I'm trying to get across is we train doctors because we do we we train physicians in nutrigenomics. I think we've got to get away from the pill for the ill. That if you have this condition, do this. Because that kind of sort of works, but not always. So for some people who have an inflammatory condition, they might be overproducing free radicals. For another person, they may be underproducing antioxidants. For the sickest of the sick, they've got both. They're overproducing free radicals, underproducing antioxidants. So do um, you want to go through all the things that can create more free radicals? Before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, how common are you know, some of those, those SNPs? Like, for example, let's take the um, not making enough antioxidants. How common is that? Well, um, I have a, a very uh, unique database. And that is, you know, I, I mostly get referrals by physicians who say, you know, Bob, you're not a physician, but you're looking at these genomics. Help me with this patient because I'm stuck. So we see that's my common database. So in my world, it's just about everybody. Now, how that relates to the population, I'm not sure. Uh, in our software, we want to do some comparisons to our to our data versus the, uh, the, the you know, the common themes in, in population. But I've got a skewed database. So the people I look at, this is very common. Okay, and for those people, what are some of the symptoms that they have? Well, these are the people that have inflammation that nobody seems to get under control. Okay. They've, you know, they've gone to their physicians, they've gone to naturopaths, they've gone to acupuncturists, they've gone to herbalists, they've been to the top places, and they're just so inflamed. You know, their C-reactive protein might be high or the complement A might be high. Uh, or they, they've just got, uh, you know, fatigue, they can't get out of bed. And, uh, you know, many times these people have Lyme disease and mold exposure. And we'll get a little bit into IL-6, maybe after we get through some of these other things. But, uh, and, you know, painkillers take away the pain, anti-inflammatories help a little bit, but they're not getting to the root cause. And they're spending tens of thousands of dollars and getting nowhere. So I have functional medicine doctors that you know, schedule appointments with me all the time, say, Bob, let's talk about this person. You know, sometimes it'll just be me and the physician. Sometimes it'll be me and the patient and the physician. And then this is what we try to identify. Interesting. It's interesting. So these SNPs then, um, you know, if your mom or your dad or your sister, or your brother don't react to something like mold as much or, you know, uh, electromagnetic field as much, it may be because they have some sort of SNP that uh, gives them a sort of deficiency. Is that right? For you're saying for the people who don't react? Yes. Okay. Well, let's let's first talk about how we inherit our genomics. Okay. So let's say, you know, so the mother and father pass on your genetics. So you get 50% from mother, 50% from father. And let's say, for example, the mother has one defect on an enzyme and the father has one as well. So they could have one child who doesn't have any mutations at all because they got the two good ones from mother and father. 25% chance of that. 50% chance that one of the parents will give them one 
and they'll be like the mother and father. Or there's a 25% chance that the mother and father both give it and the child gets what's called homozygous or two mutations. So if mother and father have one defect on the same enzyme, you could have three kids, one that has none, no defects, one that has one, and one that has two. So uh, just earlier today, I was talking to a, uh, a mother and her daughter, and I've seen the mother, the daughter, and the son, and we were comparing it's like, oh, yeah, the, the son didn't get this one, uh, but the daughter did. But on the other hand, you know, vice versa, things get passed on differently. So that's why children of the same two parents can have completely unique genetics based on what the parents passes on. Now, if any parent has what's called a homozygous or they inherit from both mother and father, no matter how many children they have, each child will get one from that parent. Interesting. Okay. okay. Yes. So like if one parent has homozygous and the other person doesn't have any mutations, well, every child's going to have one. So if both parents, though, are homozygous, meaning both have, then every child will have homozygous as well. Okay. And this will, um, you know, influence their levels of inflammation. Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. All right, well, let's start zipping through what causes inflammation. I alluded to this a little bit earlier, uh, and that is uh, iron. So without iron, we don't have hemoglobin, we don't carry our oxygen, life doesn't exist. Uh, however, as I mentioned earlier, among the English and the Irish, and especially among Ashkenazi Jews, uh, they have genetic mutations that they'll absorb more iron. Now, you can have what are called the heterozygous just from one parent, and the literature shows that you'll absorb a little bit more iron under those conditions. It's when you got those homozygous, that's when you get hemochromatosis, where the iron is so high, uh, it can damage the liver and the organs, and the only solution is to do blood donation. You know, just either donate blood or do phlebotomy and just get, get rid of it. So it's not just over-absorbing iron. And one of my things that I think we're going to evolve into is people are looking to, to put to SNPs or mutations with disease. So what happens is, say, for example, breast cancer or dementia, they take that group of people, they look at their genome, and it's like, oh, people with breast cancer have more mutations in the BRCA genes, and therefore that's tied to breast cancer. Well, that's true, but I think just to have that one mutation is an oversimplification. Now, this is just Bob Miller opinion. That's all this is. But I think what you'll find is probably a lot of women have the BRCA gene, never get breast cancer. Then some women who have it do. My hypothesis would be it's multiple factors. You live in a moldy house. You had Lyme disease. Maybe you live next to a farm and your water had glyphosate in it. Uh, you also had difficulty making your antioxidants. Uh, maybe you had an imbalance of your hormones. Boom, breast cancer. I like to say it's the 3D chess game played underwater. Multiple factors going together. Uh, that I don't think, uh, I think the days of saying this SNP is related to that. You know, for example, I have one of the dementia genes. I'm 66 and I think my brain's doing okay. So, <laughs> But I really work at it. Okay. Uh, I take a lot of antioxidants. And probably if I didn't, I'd probably be having a little bit of memory loss at this point. Uh, 
but I think my brain's pretty sharp, but I, I work at it. You know, I have air filters in my office. I sleep in a sleeping bag that protects me from EMF. You know, I take a lot of antioxidants and those kind of things. I make sure I'm digesting my fats properly because I'd like to have a, I still like to be doing this at around 83 to 84 years old. So uh, we'll see. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, no. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing you say really, it's a really interesting point to emphasize, which is that it's not only genetics as I think there, there are some people who really place an emphasis on just genetics. And I think, you know, like you said in the beginning, the, the pharmaceutical model that we have with allopathic medicine really does tend to focus on genetics, which is why, you know, you're popping pills essentially, but it's not only that, but it's also not only your environment, right? It's that interaction, that 3D chess game that you're talking about. Sure. There's an old saying that uh, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger. And, uh, and a lot of the people that are ill today, well, let's, let's say, for example, let's look at autism. You know, our genetics haven't changed. You know, there's nobody running around differently today than there was 50 years ago. Why is autism skyrocketing? Why is diabetes skyrocketing? So I do notice in talking to parents of autistic children, you know, they have genetic patterns that may lead to more glutamate and more histamine. But I would pretend that 50 years ago, it wouldn't have mattered. That autistic child today would likely be rambunctious <laughs> or, you know, excitable, you know, high spirited, uh, but likely not autistic. I mean, why else? would autism rates be skyrocketing? Yes, they say it's a genetic, and I agree, but I think 50 years, even for myself, uh, based on my genome, I think if I would have been born 10 years ago, I'd probably be autistic. I think there's also a few researchers that I've heard that talk about how the testing and the criteria for autism has also evolved now. So they're maybe getting better at identifying it. I'm not sure how true that is, but that's what I've well, heard. Well, probably. I mean, that's probably a factor, right. but I don't think anybody could argue that there's not more autism in ADD today than there was 50 years ago. I mean, when I, when I talk to elementary school teachers, I'll say, tell me about the students today versus five years ago. All of them tell me. We're not talking about autism. More restless, can't focus, more irritable in just five years. And every teacher I've talked to tells me that. Yeah, I've heard the same exact thing. I mean, even from, you know, I think it probably started when I was in elementary school, but uh, you know, even then I've talked to several teachers and they tell me the same things. I mean, it's, it's just insane. And there's actually um, one specific elementary school teacher that I've talked to who's also kind of involved with, uh, you know, electromagnetic field research. And she tells me the same thing. I mean, that's heavily linked to ADHD, not just because of the psychological factor, but because of the physiological factor on the nervous system. Today, I want to interrupt the show to highlight Thrive Market. Now, Thrive Market is on a mission to make healthy living accessible and affordable for as many people as possible. It's a fully online subscription-based grocery store, which provides a free membership to a low-income family, teacher, or veteran in need for every single paid membership. Now let me tell you why I think Thrive Market is really changing the game in the world of health-promoting foods. First of all, you can shop hand-picked brands from cosmetics to supplements to even frozen wild-caught fish, grass-fed beef, and a bunch of other household products, which are all shipped right to your door. And you might think to yourself, well, organic health food is so expensive. 
and I totally agree, but when you buy from Thrive Market, you actually save around 25 to 50% off the retail price that you'd find in a physical health food store near you. And the membership is incredibly affordable. It's really just about the price of a cup of coffee per month. And on average, the members make it back in savings after just two orders. It's also way easier than the grocery store. Uh, they make it so easy to shop. It's all online and ships right to your door and you can sort the entire catalog by non-GMO, organic, vegan, gluten-free, paleo, sustainably farmed. Personally, my family has been ordering for Thrive Market for several years and we really can't recommend it enough. So if you wanna make eating healthier, not only more affordable, but convenient and delicious, try Thrive Market risk-free for a month using my link, I get a commission, but you also get a discount, so it's a win-win, and you'll get a gift of up to $24 in value when you use the link. And if you don't like it, no worries, you'll get a refund of your membership. The link is in the description. Hope you give them a try. Now, back to the show. Absolutely, I mean, you can find published literature, not just some, you know, tin hat running around saying something, that EMF, increases superoxide free radical. I mean, this, the experiments were done. This isn't theory. This isn't speculation. EMF increases superoxide. And um, it's, this isn't a, I believe in it or don't believe in it. It does create more superoxide. And, uh, and that will create more inflammation inside the body. Yeah, no, absolutely. And for anyone who wants to uh, go more in depth into that. The Environmental Health Trust is an amazing resource for that. They have a lot of peer-reviewed scientific research uh, published on their website, and um, yeah, I would I would uh, recommend anyone who's interested in that go check it out because there are literally thousands of studies. Um, so we talked a little bit about iron, but what else contributes to inflammation and obviously oh, EMFs? Let me go down the iron pathway just a little bit more. Okay. So if uh, if you got too much iron. Uh, what will happen is that the uh, when it, we're making energy inside the cells, sometimes an electron flies off, combines with oxygen, and makes something called superoxide. We talked about that. Then superoxide dismutase, the antioxidant, turns that into hydrogen peroxide. And that's that same thing that you put on a cut, hydrogen peroxide. The body then makes catalase, uses glutathione, and something called thriadoxin to turn that hydrogen peroxide into water. If that doesn't happen, that iron in what's called the Fenton reaction, discovered in 1895 by Dr. Fenton, will turn into what are called hydroxyl radicals that are very pro-inflammatory and will create all kinds of inflammation throughout the body. So it goes back to if you, so the people that really struggle with this may have a genetic predisposition to overabsorb iron and then maybe they cook in iron skillets and uh, if you want to be entertained or disgusted sometime just go on youtube and google iron filings in cereal I've and it will that. show where somebody takes a box of cereal grinds it into a powder mixes it with water holds a magnet and pieces of metal come up there's your fortified cereal cool <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if you have excess iron and you don't clear your hydrogen peroxide, Fenton reaction occurs and you've got hydroxyl radicals. One of the most common things I see with people who have 
uh, high levels of inflammation. So what do you do? Sometimes you have to uh, do some things that slow down the absorption of iron, particularly men donate blood. Um, if you if you got mutations in catalase, take some catalase. If you don't make your glutathione properly, support that. Uh, if you don't recycle your glutathione, work on that pathway. So again, we're not looking at a disease or treating a disease. We're supporting the function. Okay. okay. Now let's move on to the next one, uh, nitric oxide. Uh, if, you, if you Google nitric oxide Nobel Prize, you'll see that there was a Nobel Prize given for the research into nitric oxide. It's a gas that's a vasodilator. Okay. Uh, and... Uh, not low nitric oxide is going to relate to things like hypertension and other inflammatory conditions. Um, lack of nitric oxide is related to erectile dysfunction in men. Uh, and of course, I'm sure people have heard about people who carry nitroglycerin with them. If they start getting angina, they put that drug under their tongue. It increases the nitric oxide and then the angina gets better. So one of the interesting things about nitric oxide is as we make it, if there's genetic mutations in the enzymes that don't make it, rather than making nitric oxide, it goes into superoxide. Then that superoxide combines with more nitric oxide and makes an oxidizing agent called peroxynitrite. Then that depletes something called BH4 that's needed to make nitric oxide. So many times people have cold hands and feet or something called Raynaud's or cardiovascular they're not making enough nitric oxide. So simple things, you know, things like uh, beets that are high in nitrates can do that, uh, can help you that make more nitric oxide. Uh, or there's actually things like uh, pomegranate and hawthorn berries that can actually help the NOS enzyme. So it's interesting, we have things in nature that support that. So again, we're not talking about a disease, we're talking about function. And if you don't have those enzymes working properly, Rather than making nitric oxide, you make superoxide. And by looking at the genome, you can see when there's mutations in those what are called nitric oxide synthase enzymes. Now let's talk about glutamate. Glutamate's a neurotransmitter that makes you intelligent, highly motivated, go-getter. These are the people that are like, school's easy, um, and they're you know always can be dependent upon. If there's a job to be done, they're there to get it done. Glutamate needs to turn into GABA. GABA is the, don't worry, relax, chill. We need a balance between the two. Um, and interestingly, even ethnically, there's uh, some changes there. Like if you go to Switzerland, everything's neat and clean. And if the, if the train is late by 15 seconds, people are having a fit. Go to the islands, if you have an appointment at noontime, if you're there by one o'clock, what's the problem? No. <laughs> Um, and again, neither is better or worse, but interestingly, in some of those cultures, there's high glutamate. Germans are high in glutamate. And if you look at Nobel Prize winners, 19th century, most were Germans. Okay. Uh, so glutamate makes you intelligent, highly motivated, go-getter. GABA is the don't worry, relax, be happy. Glutamate too high will make you anxious, uh, make you very sensitive to bright lights and loud noise. Children with high glutamate tags bother them. Um, they're very sensitive, you know, sometimes they're a little bit paranoid. Um, if the glutamate goes too high, 
uh, that's when you can get OCD or you can actually become uh, uh, schizophrenic. I mean, that's a complex issue, but high glutamate plays a role in that. Or sometimes people with high glutamate will start seeing visual hallucinations. They think they see somebody in the corner or they'll hear whispers. Uh, so there are genetic mutations that make high glutamate and there's genetic mutations that impair the glutamate to GABA conversion. So mutations in DAO can make more glutamate. Mutations in GAD, G-A-D, can make the glutamate to GABA conversion difficult. And again, there's a couple simple herbs, something called hanokiel, which comes from uh, magnolia bark, supports the glutamate to GABA conversion. Uh, and now interestingly, glutamate just doesn't make you anxious. It also stimulates inflammation inside the body. So glutamate, high glutamate seems to be associated with high anxiety or mm -hmm. high stress. Mm -hmm. um, and so would that be, I guess this is probably multifactorial answer, but would high amount of glutamate be due to an overproduction or an inability to um, you know, convert it to something else? It can be both. It can be both. You can have mutations in a DAO enzyme that makes more glutamate, and you can have mutations in the GAD enzyme that doesn't turn glutamate into GABA. Now, glutamate's also quite interesting. It also turns into energy, succinyl COA. So you can actually even have mutations that you don't turn glutamate into energy, Glutamate also is one of the cofactors for glutathione. So you can also have genetic mutations that the glutamate doesn't go into glutathione. And glutamate also goes into glutamine, an amino acid, and you can have issues there. Yeah, glutamate's very complex. And then unfortunately what happens is, you know, a lot of people uh, think, well, I'm gonna improve my health, I'm gonna do bone broth. And if you have high glutamate, that can push it higher, or they have a, a gut issue, so some well-meaning says, let's give you high doses of glutamine powder to heal your gut. Well, if you already have too much of that, you can make things worse, or collagens. So, you know, one person's uh, healing agent is another person's poison. Wow. Yeah. So I believe way too much uh, glutamine is being consumed. Now, it does heal the gut, but it does so by stimulating growth of new cells but that can be pro-inflammatory. So again, I think we've got to get away from the pill for the ill or, you know, you got a gut problem, take glutamine, maybe. If you already have too much glutamate, you can be throwing fuel on the fire by actually doing bone broth and glutamine, thinking you're doing well, and you can actually make the problem worse. You know, as you said that, believe it or not, I was actually just sipping on bone broth right now so <laughs> and, that, and that might be fine for you yeah right right that, that might be fine for you if you don't have a glutamate issue and you don't have a histamine issue uh, that can be just fine so that's a good segue let's talk about bone broth it's high in glutamine and histamine now allergies boom just through the roof so people are swallowing antihistamines by the bucket load so histamine is not bad we need it. It's part of our protective mechanism. It actually, at the right levels, can help you sleep. But in excess, histamine will actually drive inflammation. So that's why people get the runny nose, the itchy eyes, the sinus congestion. But histamine can also affect the skin. You know, oftentimes people tell me, well, I don't have any allergies, so I don't have a histamine problem. 
but histamine can affect the cardiovascular system, can affect the gastrointestinal system. That's my own personal issue that I deal with. Histamine affects my gastrointestinal system. Um, it can affect us in so many ways. So people take antihistamines, which block the receptor site. They work beautifully at suppressing the symptoms. Uh, but one of my questions is, well, if you block it from going into there, then where else does it go and what else does it do? So I believe one of the uh, things we're seeing in our country right across the world is overproduction of histamine. And uh, let's not go too deep in the woods, but there's an enzyme called NOx, NADPH oxidase, one of my favorite enzymes. A favorite from a standpoint, I think it's a problem. So when we are faced with a pathogen uh, coming into our bodies, I mean, what an amazing immune system we have. The immune system says, uh, you don't belong here, dude. Let me create some superoxide, mast cells, and histamine and take you out. If we didn't do that, life wouldn't exist. We'd be dying of infection. However, I believe environmental factors are overstimulating that NOx enzyme. And, you know, when I talk to doctors who've been uh, practicing more than 20 years, when I do my training for physicians, I'll say, okay, for those of you who practiced 20 years ago, how much mast cell activation did you see back then? It's like, we didn't. How much do you see now? Majority of people are coming in. This is not only like the functional medicine doctors. The majority of the people have mast cell activation. So mast cells are white blood cells that protect us. They're our friends unless they're overactive. And we're just seeing so many people now with these mast cells being overactive. And it causes inflammation in the body, including creating histamine. And then there's multiple enzymes. We, we make something called dynamine oxidase that degrades histamine. Some people have genetic mutations. They don't make enough of that. We have an enzyme called HNMT, histamine and methyltransferase, that degrades histamine. Some people have mutations there. MAOA, MAOB. Uh, there's what are called the UGT enzymes that do something called glucuronidation, a phase two detox. Sometimes people have mutations there. They don't clear the histamine. That histamine, interestingly, then stimulates a cytokine called interleukin-6. And guess what it does? It makes more mast cells and more histamine. And you're on one cute little merry-go-round that just keeps spinning around. But then that IL-6 also makes more superoxide, more peroxynitrite. So, we, so when we look at someone's functional genomics, we look at, are you not producing enough DAO? Is your HNMT enzyme not doing its job? Is your glucuronidation not doing its job? Then there's ways you can compensate for that. And are now, the approaches to limit histamine, high histamine foods and histamine producing foods? And is there that, also a way to- That can to, be a strategy, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. okay. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, there, there are some people that, uh, again, think that this is good for everybody. So sometimes people will recommend uh, fermented foods to heal the gut. And, uh, and the, the idea is that it supports the probiotics and the biome. Absolutely correct. Unless you don't degrade the histamine. So I have seen so many individuals trying to get better by going on a, like a GAPS diet or something like that. And they made themselves 
worse. So again, we got to get back when somebody says this is the diet that's good for everybody. Run, because there isn't one. <laughs> so, so for some people, they gain their health back by severely reducing high histamine foods. Now, if you have enough DAO and your histamine pathways are, are fine, go ahead. Enjoy your sauerkraut and kombucha and miso and all those kind of things because it probably does help the gut. But if you're overproducing histamine, you don't make enough of the enzyme that degrades it. Your detox pathways are not working. Histamine foods is your worst enemy. So again, one person's medicine is another person's poison. So that's another area we need to look at because high histamine will drive systemic inflammation throughout the entire body. Gotcha. Now, there's, this is probably something that nobody's heard of, and that is called the, uh, the heme cycle. And uh, that is where the body takes glycine and amino acid, and uh, they take uh, succinose COA from the Krebs cycle, and they go through eight steps. And the bottom line is to set you up so that iron can go into your heme. Your, for your hemoglobin. And heme is also responsible for many of your phase one detoxes. So if we have genetic mutations in any of those steps, what can easily happen is what are called porphyrins will block the GABA receptor sites. And these people are anxious as can be and inflamed. And these are people who get hangry because they need a constant source of fuel. So they, these people just crave food and many times become alcoholics because they need that sugar to feed that, uh, that pathway. Uh, and then finally, we want to talk about uh, EMF and uh, the NOx enzymes. Uh, there's interestingly, there's a, there's a gene called calcium voltage channel gate. And what it does, it sits on the outside of your cells. And what it does, it regulates calcium going into the cells, which we need it's stimulated by voltage. We are electrical beings. You know, we, that's why when somebody gets a severe case of diarrhea, you know, you can have, you know, especially children, you can wash out your electrolytes and you're in trouble. So we are electrical beings and we do send an electrical signal to put calcium into the cell. When there's mutations on these calcium voltage channels, the gates allow too much calcium to come in. And make a long story short, it creates more superoxide, more peroxynitrite, and more inflammation. So these are the people that when they're around EMF, and I've spoken to many people, that they can tell when they're being exposed to EMF. They can feel it. And of course, they're many times condemned and criticized. You're crazy. You know, this can't hurt you. This cell phone, well, that's nonsense, you know, kind of stuff. But they actually do feel it. And then on sadly, despite the fact that uh, they're, they're sick, they're ridiculed for it. Or people that are exposed to mold because mold stimulates inflammation. And they complain that, oh, I'm sick in this house. And it's like, oh, it's nonsense. It's all in your head. You need to see a psychiatrist. You know, so, uh, and I, I don't, you know, I will admit there are some hypochondriacs, so I'm not dismissing them. But many of the people who do have reactions to these things, they really do. They're not making it up. Uh, one of my favorite sayings when I, when I do uh, health coaching consultations is I have four important words for you, and that is it's not your fault. Because sometimes some people are, you know, if they're anxious or they're depressed, it's like, 
well, just relax, you know. And then sometimes in the religious community, it's like you're not praying hard enough. There must be sin in your life. Then the new age groups, it's like we are not intending it enough. You're not meditating hard enough. You know, and all of those are good. I mean, prayer is great. You know, faith in God is great. Meditation is great. Uh, fine. But if you've got high glutamate and it's, you're not going to talk your way out of it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think what you're saying is spot on to what I've come to learn too. Um, it, it can't just be, you know, a mental thing. Um, it's great if you're doing something like, I don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy, if that's what you need, but also working on the physiological piece, because if your glutamate levels are high and you're trying to will yourself to not be anxious, I found that to me, that doesn't really work. No, it doesn't. And then you beat yourself up. So then it's like, well, I guess I don't have enough willpower. I guess right. I don't have enough faith. I, I guess I'm not a good meditator. Yeah. And then it's my fault. Well, if you've got high glutamate and high histamine, it's not your fault. You know, uh, I often, I, I make people laugh. I say, I wish I could give you a syringe of glutamate and histamine, shoot these in this people's butts and say, now tell me about just, you know, willing yourself out of this. You know? <laughs> that always makes them laugh and it makes them feel good. Uh, they're so thankful when they're told it's not your fault. Now, again, stress and anxiety, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. Psycho There's many, many causes. So I don't want to say that uh, everybody who's stressed has high glutamate and high histamine. That would be, you know, improper to say that. Right. Uh, there are many conditions. The cognitive therapy is helpful if somebody's had traumatic life events. But in some individuals, the anxiety is related to glutamate and histamine. And I've seen many people cut some of the high histamine foods, take a DAO enzyme, and they're a new person. Now, that's not the solution for everybody. You know? right. Again, we can't say this works for anxiety. We've got to have personalized care. And so you achieve that by doing the testing. Right. Look at the genome. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So Amazing. I think we, and when I started out, you know, it was like, you know, you look in the book, oh, do this for arthritis, do this for that. And uh, now I'm to the point of let's not, let's look at the person. And, yeah. per, and I think that's going to be the future. We're on the, the verge, I believe, of personalized care. I mean, we're just infancy of this, that we need to look at the person as an individual, not as a cookie cutter, do this for that. Absolutely. I mean, it, it really comes down to bio-individuality. And I think stuff like the food pyramid, um, recommendations for everybody is something that we desperately should get away from. Absolutely. Now, you ready to move into the antioxidants? Yes. So to clarify, all of those things that you listed are things that either increase inflammation, um, they drive histamine, and they drive interleukin-6. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah, perfect. Let's get into the antioxidants. Let's get into the antioxidants. And uh, there's something called NRF2, NRF2, nuclear transfactor anthroid 2. That's why they call it NRF2. And uh, uh, I'm fascinated by NRF2. So um, what happens is that um, I often give the analogy, think of a sprinkler in the system, in the ceiling. So if you have a sprinkler in the ceiling, there's a heat detector and there's a valve. And there's a water pipe behind that with water. And it sits there and does absolutely nothing unless there's a fire. 
And if a fire starts, the valve opens up and squirts out the water. Now, again, what a, what a miracle the body is, we sense when there's high levels of inflammation. And something called keep one is kind of like the valve that's shut because it holds on to NERF2. And NERF2 sends a signal to all the genes that make, utilize, and recycle glutathione. It also is involved with the recyclers. It's also involved with glucose metabolism. It's involved with phase one, two, and three of detox. Um, NERF2 is a central component. It, it balances autophagy and mTOR, the cleaning of the cells and the growth of the cells. And KEEP1 holds on to NERF2. So you can actually have genetic mutations in the KEEP1 that actually makes the KEEP1 stronger, meaning it holds on more tightly. So that when inflammation comes along, it's like, inflammation? What inflammation? And it doesn't relieve the NERF2 to go do its job. You can also have mutations in NERF2, that the NERF2 is not as robust. Just, you know, Bob Miller observing, you know, because I do functional health coaching nine to 11 hours a day, six days a week. For people who have a lot of mutations in KEEP1 and NERF2, these are the folks that have unresolved inflammation that nothing is working. And interestingly, there are nutrients that will support NERF2. Uh, something called uh, hepcidin. Uh, there's a product made from, uh, from astragalus called paractin, milk thistle, uh, turmeric. All of those push that NERF2 a little bit to, uh, to make it uh, move its antioxidants. Uh, studies have shown that the higher the NERF2 in a mammal, the higher the average lifespan. So when you look at bats and rats, despite the fact that one crawls and one flies, they're very similar. But I believe the NERF2 is stronger by a factor of four in the, uh, in the bats, and it lives about four times longer. So wow. there's a direct linear relationship between NERF2 activity of the animal and how long it lives. So some people don't turn on NERF2, so to speak, as well as others? Yes. Okay. Yes. And then if you combine that with mutations, maybe in how you make glutathione, then that, again, it amplifies. So again, I think when we look at what is the SNP, like one of the things that drives me crazy is, oh my God, I got MTHFR, I need to take methylfolate. Mm. Maybe not. <laughs> we can get into that. Uh, but we, we simplify things of, oh my gosh, I've got MTHFR, therefore I need to do this. And they feel great for around 10 days and then they crash. Why does that occur? Well, um, there's a, I'll tell you what, let me, let me go move on to NADPH and then I'll come back to that. So one of my favorite subjects is NADPH. <clears throat> so what happens is when, I, when your glutathione becomes oxidized, it needs to be recycled. NADPH is what puts that electron on to recycle it. Uh, NADPH is needed to make nitric oxide. It's critical. And we can have genetic mutations like the G6PD that we spoke about, NQ01, that we don't make enough NADPH. Okay. Uh, or uh, this is a, a phrase that I've actually coined a couple of years ago, the NADPH steel. 
So what happens is the Knox enzyme that we spoke about earlier, that creates an inflammatory burst to kill the pathogen. Again, we didn't have that, life wouldn't exist. It's good unless it's in excess. Now what's interesting, NADPH is what's used to recycle your glutathione, help you make your nitric oxide, do all these good things. But the Knox enzyme uses NADPH to make free radicals. So the same NADPH was an electron donor can recycle and knock down inflammation or be used to make inflammation. I found that quite fascinating. Bob Miller hypothesis only. Okay. I tried to, I thought, why would nature do that? Now here's just the Bob Miller hypothesis. So this in three bucks will get you a cup of coffee. But I think when we have an infection, we want to have inflammation. We tend to think of inflammation as being bad. But when we have a pathogen to fight, we want those bullets to fly. We want to kill. So wouldn't it make sense that nature would have us that when the battle is going on, we slow down the antioxidant production because we want free radicals to kill. So we, we tend to be simplified. Antioxidants good, free radicals bad. Kind of. We need the free radicals to act as signals and to kill the pathogens. But if it's running too hot, that's when it does damage to us. You'll get a kick out of this. One of my favorite sayings is, I just told my staff this today. I said, if you really need to decide what the key to life should be, it's Goldilocks and the three bears. Not too hot, not too cold, not too hard, not too soft. So we need free radicals to fight the battle. But if the, if the army turns against the citizens, we have a problem. That's what autoimmune disease is. Right. So I believe that environmental factors are overstimulating the Knox enzyme excessively. And then what that does, that causes that NADPH to be stolen, the NADPH steel, so we don't have it for those other good things. Now, what we've been observing in our research is that those who have Knox enzymes upregulated, plus they don't make enough NADPH, these are the folks who have a lot of inflammation. So one of the things that's been very popular now, you know, some of the folks are talking about NMN, nicotinamide mononucleotide, because it helps you make NAD. NAD is what balances growth versus cleaning. It helps feed what's called the PARP enzymes for DNA repair. It helps you make your antioxidants. So you would tend to think the more of this, the better. Let's take that NMN. Okay. However, if the Knox enzyme is upregulated, this is where taking NMN actually makes you worse. So again, 3D chess game played underwater. So um, I've spoken to many doctors who do uh, NAD intravenous, and I've said, how many people are helped tremendously by this? Oh, it's great. How many people you really made them much worse? It's like, well, yeah, sorry, we did. So what can be, again, medicine for one person can be poison for another. The hypothesis, and it's only just that, and that is that if the Knox enzyme is upregulated, NAD can actually turn into more inflammation. Now, back to your question on folate. I don't know the exact mechanism, but this is published literature, that if you don't have enough NADPH, folate actually becomes inflammatory. 
So you have all these people, oh my God, I've got MTHFR. They start taking three to five milligrams of folate and they're actually throwing fuel on the fire. Now, clearly, if you're a pregnant woman, get on folate this afternoon <laughs> uh, because you need that to stimulate mTOR for the health of the baby. Um, but excessively stimulating it can be a problem. So again, Goldilocks and the three bears. Methylfolate stimulates mTOR, the growth of new cells. Do we need that? Of course we do. But if we push it too hard, then we're going to weaken our autophagy. mTOR, the, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is that the upregulation of mTOR correlates with uh, cancer? Yes. Right. Well, mTOR doesn't cause cancer, but mTOR is the growth of new cells. Right. So it stands for mammalian target of rapamycin. If we didn't have that, the sperm and the egg would never become the baby. The baby never become the adult. We'd never make new cells. Critical for life. The inverse of that is autophagy, the cleaning of the cells. And so we need to clean ourselves as well. Take out the old dead cell because your cells are constantly dividing. That old cell has to be taken out. And that's why when people get older, they get age spots, sunspots, liver spots. That is dead cells that are not cleared out. They become senescent and then they become actually inflammatory. So it's very important that we have that balance. Goldilocks and the three bears. We need autophagy to make new cells. We need autophagy to clean the cells. They need to be in balance. One of my studies on Lyme disease showed that those with chronic Lyme had genetic and environmental factors that put that out of balance. Excessive mTOR, insufficient autophagy. So back to the, um, you know, back now to the mTOR, your question, mTOR replicates cells. It doesn't care whether it's a healthy cell, cancer cell, or even COVID, it replicates it. So excessive mTOR won't cause cancer, but if you have cancer, it may stimulate the growth of it. Even pharmaceutically, they're looking at ways to slow down mTOR as a treatment for cancer. Wow. So the biggest point that I think you're emphasizing is balance, right? We want balance of growth or mTOR and autophagy and, you know, cleaning. Um, we also want the balance of antioxidants and oxidation. Yes. It all comes down to balance. Okay. You know, a good example is homocysteine. The higher the homocysteine goes, the sooner you die from all causes. But we need homocysteine to make glutathione. So if we don't have any homocysteine at all, we don't make glutathione. So there's a balance. I mean, another good example is oxygen. Cut off somebody's oxygen supply. They've got three to five minutes. Breathe pure oxygen every day. You'll oxidize and probably die in a couple of days. Water. That water, you got, what, seven, eight days before you die? Drink four gallons a day. You'll wash out your electrolytes and your heart will stop. Oh. So... <laughs> balance to everything absolutely so and in terms of the yeah no go ahead i was gonna say that the chinese got that right with the yin and the yang right you know you can be two yin or two yang and it's the balance between the two i mean some of those ancient uh ways of looking at things were brilliant i mean the, the chinese medicine of yin and yang was like wow it's really it's amazing the body works yeah it's amazing what they could do with you know without the technology that we have they understood these overarching you know, concepts and themes like balance. Amazing. So 
now I want to talk to you about a little bit more about the nutrition side of things. So I know we talked about histamine, we talked about some inflammation. Um, let's talk about a little bit about plant foods and some plant foods that could, you know, be problematic. So um, are there genetic mutations that could make certain foods like gluten, dairy, um, you know, anti-nutrients like oxalates uh, a problem? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Well, let's talk about gluten first. You know, it's in what's in wheat, barley, and rye. And uh, for the most part, you know, think of the word glue. <laughs> it, that's why when you get gluten-free, they're crumbly. Okay. Gluten by, its, by itself is somewhat inflammatory. Uh, and, but if you've got good gut health and all, you can handle the gluten just fine. But there are uh, genes called the KIAA1109s that really predisposition someone to gluten intolerance. And of course, the severe form is celiac disease. So it's usually double mutations on the KIAA that make someone uh, susceptible to, uh, to celiac. Um, and then, of course, what we're doing is uh, we some people believe that we're making the gluten problem worse by glyphosate. And unfortunately, they used to put glyphosate on the soil in the beginning. Now they some people cut the wheat, spray it with glyphosate so it dries faster. So we're getting exposed to more glyphosate. Again, someday we're going to look back and say, oops. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about oxalates. You know, I've, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who weren't feeling well. And they decided, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to eat healthy. So let's get rid of the junk food. And what could be more healthier than spinach, kale, beets? I'm on a health binge now. I'm going to get real healthy. And then all of a sudden they're getting worse. You know, they're making smoothies with their spinach, kale, and beets. And it's like, what the heck? I'm eating healthier and I'm getting worse. Okay. So if you take those three, spinach, kale, and beets, and you look at them under a microscope, uh, you will see there's like little razor blades. They're called oxalates. Okay. And if your gut is doing okay, they just go right through the gut no problem. And we think from an evolutionary standpoint, um, if bugs tried to eat them, insects, they, it killed the insects because it just ripped up their intestinal tract. So the plants that had more oxalates survived. It's amazing. Survival of the fittest. And it's fascinating. Yeah, so uh, so these, these plants that had the oxalates survived. So they're the ones that kept going. So if your gut is doing okay, you do fine on those oxalates. But if you've got a gluten problem or a histamine problem where you get what's called a leaky gut, so there's what are called tight junctions on the gut. And if they start opening up just a little bit, okay, those oxalates can leak through. So for some people, a massage is just a wonderful thing. For others, it's like, oh my gosh, no, it hurts. Because when those oxalates are in the skin, and you get a massage, it's like, ouch, that hurts. Or somebody just gives him a big hug or, you know, plays around and grabs him on the arm. It's like, ouch, that hurts. And it's like, oh, come on, that can't be. Or, you know, pain with urination. So unfortunately, their quest for health backfired on them. Now, again, I'm not against spinach, kale, and beets. They're wonderful foods. But if you eat too much of them and have a leaky gut, it can actually create a problem. And sadly, oxalates stimulate interleukin-6, one of the major inflammatory markers inside the body. 
Now, genetics will never tell you whether you have an oxalate problem. Uh, you've got to do like a Great Plains or an organic acid test to see if you have oxalates. But there are genetic predispositions that if you get oxalates in the body, you don't degrade them as well. So functional genomics is never a diagnosis. It doesn't tell you where you're at or where you're going to be. It gives potential. So if somebody has a lot of genomic mutations on their oxalate degradation, it looks like they've got a gluten problem and a histamine problem, you would likely be high on the potential to have high oxalates. But again, you have to do lab work to see it. But if you're very sensitive to touch, if you have pain with urination that's not a urinary tract infection, there's a good chance oxalates are wreaking havoc. So very sad that uh, somebody tries to make themselves healthy and they make themselves worse. Absolutely. I think that's one of the problems with, I think in the past decade, you know, the vegan diet has become very popular. That's probably one of the problems with it because I think there are probably a lot of people now with, you know, leaky gut or intestinal permeability. And, you know, if they're over consuming plant foods, they're getting, you know, lectins, they're getting oxalates, they're getting all of these things that you're talking about that could potentially disrupt their health and actually make them worse. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And let's talk about dairy. You know, um, one, of, one of my favorite jokes is uh, milk is the absolute perfect food to take a baby calf into a cow. <laughs> uh, and it, um, you know, we are the only mammal that drinks the milk of another mammal. And, and I'm not anti-dairy by any stretch. Uh, but what we have to be careful of is that dairy does contain some of those growth factors that can stimulate mTOR because that's what it's for, to support growth. Uh, but as we know, you know, milk has, uh, has lactase in it, uh, lactose rather, and uh, we make an enzyme called lactase that degrades the milk. Now, interestingly, there's a genetic mutation that keeps the lactase enzyme turned on. So again, we tend to think this was an evolutionary during times of famine. People who had that survived on milk. So you can actually see when you have a genetic mutation that's not the normal one, that's the one that keeps the lactase production turned on because the lactase was designed to be on for a couple of years and then shut off. So when the baby weaned from mother, it didn't need it anymore. So I mean, what a miracle the body is, it's astonishing. So we have the ability to digest the milk while a baby and then it shuts off and there's genetic mutations that keep that turned on. So if that stays turned on, then your body's producing the enzyme that can degrade the milk. Now, there's more, there's issues with proteins and other things in dairy just beyond that. But that's an interesting one. We, we look at that when we do a genetic analysis, that if people do not have the mutation, uh, what they should do if they want to do dairy is like do a lactate, you know, before the, before the dairy. Okay. And then how prevalent are, you know, some of these um, dairy intolerances? Uh, Again, I guess my database is skewed. I do see a lot of people of Northern European descent. Uh, and that mutation is very common, making them able to handle the, the dairy. But I do see it. Uh, okay. That the lack of mutation, interestingly, is what makes you intolerant to, to dairy or less able to break it down. Now, again, if, if you've got a healthy gut and you, know, you, you don't have any other problems, even without that, you can probably handle dairy okay. But... If you've got an already compromised gut, then you do dairy when you don't break it down. 
you know, the bloating, gas, those kind of things occur with, with meal. Right. Now, I want to move into another potentially problematic thing. I know we only have a few, well, around 12 minutes left. Um, so another problem with, um, you know, the vegan diet, I don't mean to trash the vegan diet. I think there are certainly ways that you could probably make it as nutritious and nutrient dense as possible. But um, there are or there could be problems with people um, converting, you know, vitamin A, let's say in sweet potatoes um, is different than the vitamin A that you find in uh, liver or egg yolks or animal foods. So how does that play into nutrition? Sure. Absolutely. There's a there's a gene called BCMO1. And what that does that takes your uh, your beta carotene, like in carrots, and turns it in the active form of retinol vitamin A. And you know where I'm going, you can have mutations here, that that beta carotene to vitamin A is not as robust. So when I consult with physicians, if I see their patient has a lot of those mutations, I say, you know what, measure your beta carotene and vitamin A, because sometimes despite the mutations, it still worked anyway. So Genetic mutations is a potential. Now, vitamin A is not only needed for the immune system, but it's also needed for proper use of iron. So if somebody doesn't have enough vitamin A, their iron can be problematic as well. Uh, so I'm, I don't know if you've ever seen anybody who becomes a health nut and they decide, I'm going to drink a lot of carrot juice. And they have six or eight glasses of carrot juice and they turn orange. <laughs> These are the people that don't convert their beta carotene to vitamin A. So they thought they were doing good. And I don't know if there's any serious problem with having too high a beta carotene. But we see it sometimes. I'll ask the doctor, I'll say, you know what, check their beta carotene and vitamin A. And many times they're high in beta carotene, low in vitamin A. Interesting. Okay. And are there other um, micronutrients, any other vitamins and minerals that that could be a problem? Yeah, the one that I'm, I'm really uh, fascinated with, well, there's a couple. Uh, one is B6. Okay. And, you know, B6 is critical. But back to Goldilocks and the three bears, B6 can be too high. And if B6 is too high, it can create all kinds of inflammation. There actually is a, is a gene called NBPF3 that degrades B6. And when people have mutations in that, they're not degrading their B6. And then that B6 oftentimes uh, creates inflammation. One of my theories is there's an enzyme called histidine decarboxylase that turns histidine, an amino acid, into histamine. If you've got an upregulation of that and too much B6, these people's histamine is through the roof because they they've got high B6, they've got high blood histamine because they're making too much. So again, you know, I've seen people that uh, they think they're doing good by taking a B complex. And if it's 50 or 100 milligrams of B6 and they don't degrade it, their B6 is through the roof. Now, I'm very intrigued by a riboflavin, B2. Uh, riboflavin makes something called FAD. FAD is a cofactor that works with the GSR enzyme to take oxidized gluthione back to reduced. And if we don't have enough riboflavin, I don't care what your GSR is, I don't care what your NADPH is, you're not going to take it back. And that's one of the important things I'd like to make known. People are concerned about genetic mutations, and that's relevant. But you can have a perfectly working enzyme, and if you don't have the cofactor, it's like having a brand new car without gasoline. 
it's a hunk of metal sitting there. <laughs> and so if you don't have enough riboflavin, you could have perfect GSR, you could have perfect NADPH, you could have perfect NERF2, it's not happening. And the same way with histamine and methyltransferase, we need something called SAMI. So you could have no mutations on HNMT, but if you don't have that cofactor, you're not going to degrade your histamine. So yes, we have to look at the genome, we have to look at the variants, but it's much more complex, it's the cofactors. So riboflavin makes something called FAD, which is the cofactor to take oxidized glutathione back to reduced, and also the cofactor for the MAOA enzyme, MA, MAOA enzyme to degrade histamine. So if you don't have enough riboflavin, you're going to be inflamed, you're going to create histamine, and you're not going to degrade the histamine, and it could be just a riboflavin problem. So that's why I think it's important to look at the riboflavin transporters. And what I've seen is when people have mutations in riboflavin transporters, and they're having all kinds of inflammation and histamine problems, B2 could be the answer. Now, I'm not saying B2 is the solution for high histamine and inflammation. I'm saying for those who have that genetic issue, and FAD deficiencies, the problem. Certain contexts. Yes. So that's, and then also thiamine, uh, B1 thiamine also calms down what's called interleukin 6 mm -hmm. and mutations there. And then the final one, there's a solute carrier for acenolol carnitine. And acenolol carnitine helps take the fats into the cells for being, for being used. And if you've got mutations in that enzyme, many times, uh, fats just become oxidized. So again, you know, there's people that say, oh, we need the good fats. We need the good fats. Well, that's great. But if you don't carry those fats in, or you don't make enough phosphatidylcholine or choline, those fats oxidize. So again, everyone is unique. So when everybody says, eat a high fat diet and you're going to be healthy, I mean, the good fats, not the bad fats, maybe. <laughs> For those who say eat an all plant diet and you're going to be healthy, maybe. Okay. So it all depends on, on the individual. And, and that's one of the things that uh, I'd like to do with the Nutrigenic Research Institute over the coming years. Uh, we want to work on creating nutrigenomic panels that people can look at so that you can even maybe, we'd like to someday be able to customize a multivitamin for you. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. That this is your multivitamin. You know, you might need more molybdenum because your SUOX enzyme is not turning your sulfites into sulfates. You may not need nearly as much B6 because you may not degrade it. So it's going to be years until we're there, but uh, we'd like to work with some universities and others so that we can put your genome in and say, okay, here's, so a compounding is going to make a multivitamin for you. For example, if somebody overabsorbs iron, the last thing you want to do is give them iron. Okay. Right. Uh, if somebody's got too much glutamate, the last thing you want to do is give them glutamine. And if somebody's got mutations in the NOS enzyme, the last thing you want to do is give them L-arginine because that's what's going to make more inflammation. So one of, it's, it's interesting in my health coaching, many times I often say, I think I help people the most by taking them off things. <laughs> <laughs> because many times people are like, oh my gosh, I've been shooting myself in the foot. 
I'm taking all this glutamine, I'm taking methylfolate, I'm taking arginine for my nitric oxide, and I, they're just pouring gas on the fire. Wow. So something that could be potentially helpful for one person could be highly inflammatory for another person. Absolutely. You know, and how many guys, you know, want to improve their erectile function or muscle mass by taking L-arginine because it builds nitric oxide? Many. However, if you've got not enough BH4, not enough NADPH, mutations in NOS, you make superoxide and deplete your nitric oxide. Hate when that happens. <laughs> yeah, but you can actually make the situation, same with glutathione. If you don't take your oxidized glutathione back to the reduced, and I hear this all the time, glutathione does one spin, but then gets stuck and oxidized and actually creates more inflammation and reduces your glutathione. I mean, how ironic is that, that taking glutathione could make you more inflamed and reduce your glutathione? I mean, that just seems like that's not possible. But if you don't take that oxidized back to the reduced, that's exactly what you do. NMN, you know, nicotinamide mononucleotide. Oh my gosh, look at all this stuff it does. If NOx is upregulated, you just made more inflammation. Oh, very, wow. very complex situation. Yeah. yeah, no, this is amazing. Uh, I know we don't have very much time here, so I would like to get into some of the quick rapid fire rounds that we get into at the end. I feel like I have a dozen more questions to ask you and hopefully uh, in the near future, maybe I can have you back on again, but- I'll be honored, yes. Um, so number one, what is the most important habit that you personally do every day to support your health? Oh, I drink hydrogen water. I recently started doing that actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the real quick on that is uh, water is H2O and there's tablets that you can get that are just made out of various forms of magnesium. You drop it in, it knocks the hydrogen loose and then you drink it very quickly. So all you're, you're not even taking a supplement. You're just knocking the hydrogen loose from the water it neutralizes the free radicals and helps stimulate your uh, stimulate your glutathione, SOD, and catalase. Awesome. Number two, what is the most important lesson that you've learned recently, whether it be a life lesson, a paper you read, or any book you've read? Well, and that is, I, I guess, what, what, I, what I said before, and that is there is no pill for the ill, that we've got to be personalized. So for one person, L-arginine is going to make nitric oxide, for another person, nitric oxide is going to make more inflammation. For one person, glutathione is going to be the cure they were looking for. For another person, glutathione makes them sick. So my, my life lesson is we, we've got to get away from do this for that. Finally, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Um, be cautious of cell phones. <laughs> And um, this isn't as much related to nutrition, but that is watch out for the narcissists. Because there's, um, as you can tell, I'm an empathetic person. And unfortunately, there's narcissists in the world who just love empaths and love to take advantage of them. So there's actually a genetic pattern that makes someone empathetic. And uh, I've had many people tell me, Bob, that is the most important thing I've ever heard. And that is when you're an empathetic person, those who are narcissists who just look out for themselves, they love empaths and they know how to convince them that, you know, it'd be like, oh my gosh, you're the most wonderful person. We're going to do great things together. They befriend you. They're masters of manipulation. 
then they start manipulating you, trying to get you to do what you want to do. And then when you don't, they play with your brain and make you crazy. So uh, one of my favorite things when I talk to young girls with their parents, you know, like a 12, 13 year old girl with their parents, and I'll say, now the old man's got a very important word for you to learn. Do you think you know what that word is? And they'll usually say, no. And I'll say, yeah, that's correct. <laughs> that watch out for the empaths because they will ruin your life. So when, an, so when a narcissist enters your life, run. So if I, if I could have told my 20 year old that when, when a narcissist tries to convince you that uh, they're going to be the best friend you ever had and going to help you run. I think that's probably one of the most unique answers I've gotten to that question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and many people have, they've actually called me and said, Bob, in your whole conference, your three day conference, that was profound. Because many people in the health field are empathetic and they let people take advantage of them. Amazing. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate you, um, you know, spending an hour and a half here. You're incredibly um, knowledgeable and this is going to be super valuable to everyone I know. Well, very good. And I uh, hope people found some uh, pearls in there that helps improve their lives. Oh, before I forget, where can people find you? Oh, uh, our website uh, for, for doctors, if you're a health professional, uh, you can just go to dnasupplementation.com. And if you're a health professional, you can use our uh, our software, only health professionals only. We don't work with the public. And we have online certification courses. And if someone wants to find our office for health coaching, tolhealth.com. It stands for Tree of Life, tolhealth.com. Amazing. Thank you again. All right. My pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. If you like this episode and if you've liked some of my other episodes with other guests, please take the time to review this podcast on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful to me and getting this message out to way more people.